Good morning. <laughs> How is everyone? <laughs> One big great. <laughs> cool. Now, somebody pointed out something, and I want to see how much of a problem it is. They say that my tablet reflects in my glasses, and it's horribly annoying. Is that true? I'm getting lots of no's. All right, I'm ignoring you, person. You know who you are. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I, this week caught me by surprise. I didn't expect to be up here again so soon. And Mother was uh, tantalizingly quiet this week. Uh, but I think she dumped some things by accident this morning for me to share with you. So I'm going to start, of course, with Havhiz and this poem called Venus Just Asked Me. I'd really like the tone today just to be kind of a family conversation more than anything. Uh, just talking about our spiritual life and our center and uh, how to grow and how to move forward and uh, how to dream a little bit. Venus Just Asked Me, Perhaps for just one minute out of the day, it might be of value to torture yourself with thoughts like, I should be doing a hell of a lot more with my life than I am, because I'm just so damn talented. But remember, for just one minute out of this day, with all the rest of your time, it would be best to try looking upon yourself more as God does, for he knows your true royal nature. God is never confused, can only see himself in you. My dear, Venus just leaned down and asked me to tell you a secret, to confess that she is just a mirror who has been stealing your light and music for centuries. She knows, as does Hafiz, that you are the sole heir to the king. This idea that Venus the muse the muse of love has been stealing your light. It's such a such a, a wonderfully fruitful thought and a, a brilliant realization to take to heart that you are everything that's beautiful in your life, that you are the love that you feel and are inspired to in the people that you love, in the things that you feel called to do, that you are the only thing that gives value to the material world that until it meets you, it's neutral. It has no plus or minus. It simply is. The lecture this morning starts with the first question, who can ever understand the ways of God? A man thinks, I have practiced a little prayer and austerity, so I have gained a victory over others. But victory and defeat lie with God. Ramakrishna says, I have seen a prostitute dying in the Ganges and retaining consciousness to the end. This is a very interesting thought. It set up in my mind immediately that two-columned paradigm, religiosity and spirituality, and what is the difference between the two of them. You know, Takur here is saying, a man thinks, I've practiced a little prayer and austerity, so I've gained victory over others. Hmm. That's an insight to a very wrong way of thinking. When you begin to, to credit yourself in the, in the relative world and, and compare yourselves to others around you, 
Um, I wanted this to be a little bit of a talk this morning as a family, because I, I overhear a lot of things, probably a lot more than many people would be comfortable with, around, and I hear, you know, that uh, a lot of people like, enjoy kind of correcting somebody or, or telling them that things have to be done this way or should be done this way, or you should treat a Swami this way and not that way, and you should be sure to take your shoes off here and don't ever put them there, and I hear a lot of this kind of correction going around, and it makes me think of this verse here, because that falls under the category of religiosity, religious people. Religious people like rules. They like rules because they get to enforce them, because it makes them get a sense of value for obeying them when the person who doesn't know them slips up, or when the new person comes to be able to put yourself in the role of the teacher, you know? I, I, I had it happen to me once, you know, which I love as a Swami. I wish more people would challenge me, but this came as a surprise to me. I was showing a new person, brand new, first time in the center. And so we didn't take our shoes off at the front door because they weren't in the custom of taking shoes off when they came in. And it, it, for general knowledge, the rule is in this room, there are no shoes. <laughs> Anywhere else in the temple, you can run around in your shoes if you want to, even the kitchen. <laughs> That being said, I was walking with this person through the through the, the library there, and someone came up to me and says, Maharaj, you should not be wearing your shoes in here. No, no, it's not proper. You should go take your shoes off. And they didn't say it in like, you know, like, hee hee hee, you know, you goofed off, you, you got your shoes on. They were really correcting me with a guest there beside me, and I thought, well, okay, well, We'll, we'll take them off when we get to the shoe room. <laughs> but that kind of attitude is concerning to me because it's poison. And if it gets into our system here as, as brothers and sisters, if it gets into our family here, it will be destructive. If we're going around keeping our eye over the fence, you know, checking out what our neighbor's up to, how, what are they preparing you know, for the swamis? What did they bring this week? Uh, how much punya are they after? Is their punya chart ahead of mine? There, you know, <laughs> these notions. That's that's religiosity. You know, so religion, religious, religious folks, they like those. They like those rules. They 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 like being able to teach or to correct someone. Uh, they like um, uh, they like knowledge. They like knowing stuff. They like being able to chant long things from memory, and they, they like being able to present those as often as possible, and you know, to, to, to present them as if, look, I've done something, I've managed to do something. Or singing, you know, I find in my own singing sometimes, you want to do it to sing well. That's hard, that's awful. You know, doing things just for the sake of, of seeing yourself praised, or seeing yourself feel good, or advancing your own image, in the eyes of others, that's going to fail you miserably. It's going to fail you miserably because this relative world only matters here and now. <laughs> the little trinkets that we get here that make us feel like we're doing well because we're meditating more than most people we know or because we're reading the scriptures more than most people we know, those are going to inflate you into a sense of well-being that has nothing to do with God has nothing to do with love, has nothing to do with unselfishness, has nothing to do with spirituality. And when you try at the end to present those trinkets to the beloved as your payment, because that's the way you're thinking about these things, as your payment for, for a life well lived, it's going to be a disappointing situation. You know, I, 
take that with a grain of salt because I certainly wouldn't mind meeting the beloved in any condition, even if it's a sore one. <laughs> I'm sure just seeing him would make it worth it. But nonetheless, do you see what I'm saying? That if you, if, you, if you live in this relative world and you manage your idea of your spiritual self in a relative way, meaning relating it to those around you, that, that, is, that is going to prevent us from being known for our love. That's going to prevent this place from being known for its compassion. It's going to prevent this place from becoming great for its sacrifice and for its caring for others. You know that we, we read that in 1 Corinthians 13, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. He writes about the description of love in there. And uh, one of the things he says in there is that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's a really good measure, and I ask you to take that little phrase and to put it, put it in the heart, and when you catch yourself telling somebody how they should clean the kitchen or how they should vacuum the carpet or how this should be done or remember this rule or that rule, stop for a moment and ask myself, is this puffing me up or is this building up the other person? Because if it's puffing you up, shut up. <laughs> If it's puffing you up, shut up. And I mean that as, as, as objectively as it sounds. Shut up. If you're saying things because you look good, sound good, it gives you a sense of control, a sense of goodness, a sense of strength, a sense of betterness, shut up. You're going down the wrong path. It's not a value to you to finish that sentence, and it's not a value to the other person to endure it. So make sure especially here in this shrine, in this, this temple to love, this temple to compassion, who houses some of the most beautiful and warm lovers that this planet has ever seen, please measure yourself by the love you feel from them and from their lives and from their inspiration. And make sure that what you say to others in the way of correction or in the way of teaching is there to build them up to make them stronger, to inspire them, to make them feel better about themselves, not to, not to make them always wonder if, <laughs> you know, they're on their left foot. Because, you know, we, we as, a, as a communal culture here uh, have a lot of don't-touch-isms and do-isms and don't-do-isms that we're very comfortable with because we grew up around them and we know them and we, we, we know how to navigate them. When new people come into the place, they don't. They haven't heard these things, and they're not accustomed to them, and they're not expecting them. And so it's very tempting for us to conform them, to get them in conformance with the rules and the regulations of this place, which are utterly unnecessary for their knowing and appreciation of the beloved, which have utterly no value to them as devotees, as seekers of God, you know, but have every bit of value in building up our religiosity and, and, and a pride. He is saying here, Talkor is saying, sorry about that. <laughs> Talkor is saying, I have practiced, uh, or, but victory and defeat lie with God. So where does our value lie with? This is a very important point to focus. If we're not going to put our value on what we know, and we're not going to put our value on how much we're meditating and how much we're praying and how much scripture we've memorized or whatever like that, if that's not where our, our 
check chart is going to come from for how we're doing. Where does it come from? It comes from God. It comes from our relationship with the beloved. It comes from that that sense of being inside, that sense of communion, that bliss. You know, again, Swamiji gives us two measures. He says, "How, how unselfish are you? That's the first question. If you want to know if you're spiritual, how, how is your spiritual life coming? It's not, have I remembered to meditate every day? That's important, but that's not the question. It's not, you know, am I memorizing enough scripture? It's not, how much have I cooked for the temple? How delicious was it? Did the Swami have seconds? <laughs> oh, did he have thirds? You know, those are not the measures. The measure is how unselfish are you, Right? Unselfishness in regards to like bringing food for others, unselfishness is giving that food and letting go of it. Not sitting there waiting to see is it liked or not liked, is it appreciated or not appreciated, is more taken or less taken. Uh-uh. That's selfish giving because you're watching that in order to feed that religious person inside with his ego food. Ah, oh, my food was accepted. Ah, oh, my food was liked. You know, oh, look. Hers didn't get taken at all. <laughs> that person's didn't even come out of the fridge. You know, those, that kind of thinking, you know, it's funny and it's laughable and I appreciate that and, and I, I want that to be very true, but it's dangerous. It's a poison to love. It's, it's a poison to trust. It's a poison to, to being able to build up and to encourage. And we are, we are somewhat prone to it as a community. And so we need to be on guard. We need to watch that very closely. Because Takur is saying, I saw a prostitute laying on the Ganges, dying with the consciousness of God in her mind. He says, always remember, these things lie with God. All of us would just see a prostitute lying in the mud on the banks of the Ganges. God, when he incarnated, saw a woman who died with his name on her lips. You know, so what do we see? And what do we train ourselves to see? Because if we're living in ego and we're, relative, we're, 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 we're charting ourselves relative to everyone around us, those aren't the eyes of the beloved. Those aren't what God is seeing. And so we naturally will not see what God is seeing. We will not naturally be able to, to recognize him when he shows himself to us, which is a really, really big deal because he is all that we've ever seen. And because we are living according to these ideas and to these ideas of mind, because we are dedicating ourselves to, to, to pursuits of the ego, we can't see him for our life. We run around his very temple in his highest presence, looking for him, seeking for him, singing about when will come that day, you know. That day will come when we stop with the ego, when we, when we stop living in mind and just fall into the, to the beloved. He says, wherever there's a decline in righteousness and a rise of unrighteousness, to protect the virtuous and destroy the wicked, I incarnate myself from age to age. So the beloved has come in his, in his most open form to, to kill off these ideas, you know, to kill off this, this uh, the, the, the imbalance of ego life, the imbalance of ego in the world, everybody living and grabbing for themselves, you know, make America great again. These kinds of things start taking charge, you know, 
nations start pulling away from each other and falling into their own identity and consuming themselves with their own greatness and not everybody gets included in that. A world of ego is a dangerous place. We've seen where it goes. We've seen what it's capable of. And that starts with us. You know, we, we, we are a small group of people that have responded at some level to an incarnation of God who came to remove, to reestablish a balance of love in the world, to reestablish a feeling of compassion in the world, to reestablish a dedication to service in the world. We're the ones who have been graced with ears to hear that message. And now we have to rise up and beg for the grace to, to respond to that, to rise up to that notion. John the Apostle writes, one of my favorite scriptures lately actually, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What, was, what has come into being in him is life, and life is the light of all people. The light shines in the dark, and the dark does not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. You see the trouble here. This is an amazing scripture in a lot of ways, because the word is what incarnates. It's the word that becomes Takor. It's the word that becomes Jesus. It's the word that becomes Buddha. And this word is ever-present. Takor knew this about himself. He was there in the beginning. You know, when, when Jesus was asked by the, by the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, who are you? He says, before Abraham was, I am. These, these, these incarnations, this incarnation of the beloved, imagine the power that he comes into this world with. Imagine the knowledge he comes into this world, not at all fooled by the day-to-day, -day. Not, not at all caught up in, in the idea of causation and effect you know, not at all getting trapped by time, but always knowing all of this, I have become all of this, all of this is, has come from my own body. You know, we fall in love with our families because our families are manifestations of that, right? Our families come from our own bodies. So there's that natural love for your son or for your daughter that's deep, that, that can't be broken under any normal, ordinary circumstances. God has that same relationship with this world. It comes from him. It's his own body, her own body. He has that kind of relationship with everything in this room <laughs> and everyone in this room. And it's a, it's a relationship that cannot be broken. It's a relationship that cannot be violated. You are heirs to the kingdom, heirs to spirituality, to freedom to love in its purest form. Because you come of God. You are a manifestation of the same word that manifests in Takur and in Jesus and in Buddha. To lesser degrees of power, you know, you're not imbued with the same power as that light, but you are of the same nature as that light. It's come into the world and the world doesn't know him. And we talked about this last time. Remember how you valued a diamond, that story that Takur told, where he says, go to the eggplant mart and try and sell a diamond, and he'll offer you X for it. 
go to a go to the cloth merchant and then finally go to the jeweler and we see how because of what they fill their minds with with their professions and their knowledge and their their world of reality that they measure the value of other things uh, accordingly and it's because of that 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 Jesus would say something like this that i this world was made through me i am in this world i was there and am here from the very beginning and yet the world does not know me that's what he's saying you know we we live in god we swim through god all day long you know we're pushing him out of the way on the bus we're honking at him on the freeway we're you know getting frustrated for him being slow in line at the cashier talking too much to the cashier god forbid he talked too much to the cashier you know while i'm in a hurry with my eggs you know these notions that we get so distracted in what in ego in mind in in living within the constraints and and boundaries of this make believe world very rarely taking that opportunity to be infinite infinite in our patience infinite in our giving infinite in our compassion infinite in our service forgetting that that's our nature to be infinite that we don't have a small bag of x amount of giving that we can do oops i'm out of giving today <laughs> guess it's selfishness for the rest of the day for me you know oh i'm out of love for the day too bad <laughs> for my kids tonight no it's infinite and that's the point of your meditation that's the point of this place it's the point of practice it's the point of these beloved statues to remind us that these people once lived they once lived lives that 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 are going to be talked about for the rest of the life of this planet well maybe the rest of the life of the people on the planet <laughs> the planet might go longer than the people but that's the, to 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 soak ourselves in that to delight ourselves in that to sit in that company and 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 in that constant reminder so that our bags don't get empty you know if you're filling your bag with that relative living it's going to get empty as a matter of fact it's always empty <laughs> yeah that's my favorite thing about the ego is that it doesn't exist and because it doesn't exist but thinks it does it's eternally insecure So if you're going to maintain a sense of self that's not infinite, that's defined by limitations and restrictions like the body and personality and patience and all of that, if you choose to live that way, you're going to run out. You're going to, you're going to be always insecure because you don't exist separate and apart like that. You're part of an eternal an eternity. You're 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 part of an infinity, an infinity of love, infinity of intelligence. and an eternity of existence that's where you take from when you give that's where you take from when you love that's where you take from when you serve it's never a measuring i had this wonderful dream and i'm sure i've told it before but it taught me so much about the nature of my own ego in this dream there was an infinite uh, a beach a beautiful white sand and there were thousands of people on this beach and everybody was trying to get their pile of sand to be the biggest pile of sand and they were just frantically grabbing all this sand and putting it into a pile and then protecting it you know they couldn't let because the other people of course were starting to get bigger circles and starting to grab some of their sand to put in the other person's pile can't have that so this madness was going on on this beach of all the thousands of people gathering as much sand as they could and as an external watcher in the dream looking at it you're thinking this is insanity there's there's an infinite amount of sand here the sand has no value in a pile what are they doing 
What madness has come over all of these people that they're running around collecting piles of sand on a beach where there's plenty for everybody to do whatever you're going to do with sand? This world is exactly that. You know, everybody running around trying to pile as much material into their yard as possible. You know, you see these pictures of hoarder cars every now online, you know. Or uh, I had uh, two friends of mine, that, actually the two friends of Bill's, that uh, were hoarders. And you, you would go into their house, <laughs> not to speak badly of anybody. It was an experience, though. I mean, you walk into the house, there was a very narrow canyon that you had to stay on through all of the halls. There were stacks and stacks and stacks of everything. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even like there was a, you could even tell what it was. It was just stacks of stuff, just stacks and stacks, stacks. The whole house. You couldn't sit down. You couldn't tell one room from the next room. You, 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 you didn't have any choice about where you were going. You went where this canyon went, and that was that. That's the madness. You know, that's the extreme. But to, but to even take a, partial, a part of that is the same thing. In this world, you know, you see that bumper stick every now and then, he who dies with the most toys wins. Of course, that's a tongue-in-cheek thing because everybody knows, even the most non-God-interested person in the world knows that that's a ridiculous thing. He who dies with the most toys wins. But that's the way we live. We're running around gathering as much sand as we can into our little pile. And there's plenty to go around. If we were to level our wealth, if we could convince... Here I go picking on the 2%. If we could convince the 2% to share a little bit more, you know, and how do we do that? By convincing ourselves to share a little bit more. Of course, it's always dangerous to point at someone else. But if we could convince ourselves to open up and share a little bit more, there's plenty to go around. There would be no hunger. There's hunger on the world, not because why, you know, that's, that's, that's that, that way of thinking that, that we as people always like to do. Well, if God is love, why is there so many people hungry in the world? Because you didn't feed them. You are that. We like to hear that, you know, thou art that. We like that notion of being God when it serves ego. We don't like it when it makes us responsible for taking care of the hungry, when it makes us responsible for serving the sick, you know, when it makes us responsible for, for doing something for somebody else. I would like to dream for this place, to think of it, you know, to, that, that we would be without need, at least in this congregation, at least in this collection of people, that we would learn to have eyes and be so ready to serve that nobody would need anything. You know, we're, we're a congregation, like every congregation in the world, that's getting older. You know, each of us is getting old. And some people now are starting to cross the line into not being able to take care of themselves. Are we watching? Are we considering the opportunity that we have to love that's being made, that's being shown there? Are we paying attention to that? You know? Are, are, did, we, did we reach out any of the old folks that used to come that don't come anymore, that sort of just fall off the end of the stick? And we're like, gosh, one day we wake up in a conversation, gee, what happened to such and such? Where are they? Oh, they can't come anymore. Instead of having conversations like that, be proactive. That's my dream for me, to be proactive. Call them to see if they need a ride. You know, Call them to see if they need their yard mowed. I saw a brilliant story. Of course, it was one of those feel-good news things, which I love. 
of a group of teenagers, they weren't affiliated with the church at all, they were just in a neighborhood, who banded together and just went around and noticed which lawns in their neighborhood were not mowed, were not being taken care of, and went and knocked on the door and say, hey, we're just a group of volunteers going around mowing lawns. Can we mow your lawn for you today? You know, And then taking care of the problem. That's my dream for me, to have that kind of attitude, to have that kind of watchfulness. I've got so far to go on it, so far that I probably shouldn't be the one up here talking about it. But nonetheless, I offer that to you as, as a part of myself I want to change. Join me in that. Let's do that. Let's start watching each other and looking for opportunities to take care of each other, to take care of our needs. You know, Jesus said a very important thing about his followers, which, you know, I, anyway, let me, let me not go where that takes me, where he said to his followers, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. That's how you will know somebody belongs to me. They, all the avatars have spoken that way. Until we as a group of people are known for our love, we have nothing to give. We have nothing to teach. If life in this place is no different than life in any other place in Washington, D.C. this morning, we have nothing to say. Vedanta, as we know it, is not important to the culture around us, is not important to the people around us. If it has not made us known for our love, if it has not made me known for my compassion and for my caring and for the size of my heart for others, I have nothing to teach. I have nothing to give. Nothing. Nothing. How unselfish are we? How full of love are we? He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and it lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace, full of truth, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's where we begin building our castle, right there. We have received grace upon grace. We have been touched by love incarnated. We've been given an opportunity by, by the divine herself to see her love, to know that everything around you is a symbol of that love for you. And to train you how to see it, how to open your eyes to it, to teach you what is not important so that you can let go of it, so that she can show you what is, so you can be inspired by it, so that you can stretch out those wings and become the greatness that you, that you always wanted to be when you were five, when you dreamed of being a fireman, and that was an amazing thing. When you dreamed of being a policeman, when you dreamed of being a singer, when you dreamed of being a dancer. When you dreamed of being anything, there was greatness with it. Because there was a love of a child behind it. The simplicity of love behind it. Return to that vision for yourself. Be great. Be great in love. Be great in compassion. 
Be great in service. Change the reason you go to work in the morning. You know, everybody at your office will think you're there to be an engineer. Eh, That'll happen anyway, because it has to. But you go to work because you want to be the best lover of the day. And so you're looking around all the time for people that you can bring coffee to, for people that you can encourage, for people that you can be friendly to, for people that you can take some of the things out of their inbox and help them with it. (laughs) That doesn't get you in trouble. But these notions change the reason that you're alive. You know, change the reason that you're alive. Change the reason that you're in the car. Change the reason that you're at the grocery store. All the material reasons are lesser. They're unimportant. Your reason for being is to love. To grow through intelligence. To touch the feet of the divine in every interaction that you have during the day. The reason that you're at the grocery store? Somewhere walking around the bread aisle, God has put a lonely person who needs somebody. And he's opened your eyes to see them. And then he opened your heart and gave you some courage to go and talk to them. Not for any reason, but to be friendly. Because it's your nature to be friendly. Before this world taught you to to hoard your sand. Before the weights of ego taught us to be cautious about talking to strangers or being with others or being too friendly or misunderstood or any of those X number of things that ego likes to do. Return to why you're here. Return to why you're alive. Return to the reason of your birth. You were here to manifest your infinite nature, to radiate and shine like nothing else. To be so pure, so free of me and mine. That's why we go grocery shopping. That's why we get in the car. (laughs) Mr. Chudri asks Takur, how can one see God? The master says, not with these eyes. What eyes are those? These are the eyes of relativity, the eyes of ego, the eyes of religiosity. Not with these eyes. God gives one divine eyes. Who gives them? God gives them. Who do you go to to get them? You go to the beloved. You go to your prayer. You go to your meditation. You go to that silent space where the noise stops pulling you out and lying to you about your nature and about your purpose and about what's important, what needs to be accomplished today. Go into your silent space that's away from that noise and be reminded, I am love. Love has always made me happy. Love has always been the goal of my life. When my marriage was loving, it was the best. When my relationship with my kids was loving, it was beautiful. Our favorite memories are always of love. And there's no reason that they have to be memories. Those memories were made on a day just like today. Those memories were made on opportunities that will present themselves to you today. All you have to do is see them. Recognize them. Ah, here's an opportunity to be friendly, an opportunity to be loving, an opportunity to give, an opportunity to care. Those are the eyes that God's going to give you, Takor saying, so that you can see him. 
Because God is love, and if you can't see him, you're not, you're not manifesting enough love. God is love. If you don't believe in him, you're not manifesting him enough in love. Be kind, be sweet, be giving. Care about others more than yourself. And love will manifest. You will see God. You'll dance with God in a wild, whirling dance of delight that all of the holy mystics have written poems about. Beautiful poems. Not with these eyes. God gives one divine eyes, and only then can one behold him. God gave Arjuna divine eyes so that he might see his universal form. Your, your philosophy is mere speculation. It only reasons. You're saying, saying our philosophy only reasons. It's only speculation. It's, it exists in our mind. Our faith is in our mind. Our understanding of the scriptures is in our mind. You know, we can we, what is Jnana Yoga? What is Raja Yoga? What is Karma Yoga? You know, who is Thakur? And all these things, we put it in our mind. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to change that. Oh, I've got to become this. I've got to try that. I should do more of this. That's all in the mind. That's all part of the sandcastles on the beach. Step outside of that thinking. Step outside of mind, he's saying. Step outside of speculation and reasoning. Step outside of these things. God cannot be realized that way. God cannot remain unmoved if you have raga bhakti, that is, love of God with passionate attachment to him. Do you know how fond God is of his devotee's love? It's like the cow's fondness for fodder mixed with oil cake. Totally out of my realm of understanding there. Cow gobbles it down greedily. Raja bhakti is pure love of God. A love that seeks God alone and not any worldly end. And you're like, well, what, is, what does it mean to see God? Well, God is love. How do you pursue love? You pursue love by loving. <laughs> you capture love by loving. How are you going to see God? By loving. How are you going to experience him? By loving. By rising up and remembering your purpose in this world. By waking up and reminding yourself of why this day. Because if you don't, why this day does not become very clear. It becomes rather cynical. It becomes rather bitter. It becomes unfulfillable. I remember one day, gosh, it was a very difficult period of my life. I was running my career, working at a university, and I had my cubicle. And I remember just standing there, my cubicle was like about this high. So if I stood up, I could see over the sea of cubicles, and I could see the 23 heads of the people I worked with in, in, in that ocean of samsara, <laughs> as it were. And I remember just stopping and just thinking, oh, God, really? Is this it? <laughs> Is this it? Are you kidding me? You know, into all those years of schooling, I grew up with all of those, you know, sparkly-eyed ideals of what life was going to be and what I was going to be and how exciting it was going to be and how much love there was going to be in my family and my, my wife or, you know, whatever, all those things that you put together in your mind. And then you wake up one day at 50 and you're looking over a sea of cubicles and you're like, whew. God, I don't remember taking that turn. Because <laughs> you didn't take a turn. You forgot. You forgot the point of your life. And you fell into the life of an ego. 
you know, that just just kind of builds one little brick at a time, does one little good thing for itself at a time, you lose sight and you, you, you're foolish enough to believe that you come to this place every day to fill out pieces of paper and move them across a desk or to fill out forms or to draw pictures or whatever it is you do for a living. You've forgotten. That is all inconsequential. That happens, yes. That happens because that's the way the world works. But why are you here? Once again, let me tell you. My beloved, you're here to love. You're here to serve. You're here to care. To be completely perpendicular to the way that this world looks to us right now. To just be the odd man out that doesn't care about the dangers of being friendly to strangers and just is friendly to strangers. Who doesn't care how much they might get hooked in for how much if they help a homeless person on the side of the street. But, you know, but, but let's bring it in here. We always talk about homeless people. They're always going to be there. Jesus himself says that. The poor will always be with you. You know, There's something more important, and that is finding that source of love within yourself. And then, again, bring it into this room. Are this, these are the people that you're responsible for right here. This, this place is a Petri dish for you to do your experience, your experiments. Uh, not a Petri dish, that works, but a laboratory. This is your laboratory for experimenting with being love. This is your laboratory for experimenting with being caring and being giving. You don't have to go look for the person out there. I know of several people here that could use your help, that could use your trouble and your time, who aren't going to ask you. They're not going to ask you. They're not even going to betray to you that they need help. Find the eyes of the beloved that are yours and find them, suss them out. Look for them amongst yourselves and give. Give. Let this place become perfected in love and then it will spill out. Then you'll have something to say to the world. Then you'll have something the world needs to know about. Then you'll have what you've always wanted. Then that sea of cubicles will come across completely differently than what it did to my worldly mind. Love God for his own sake. Love that seeks God alone and not any other worldly end. Pralada had it. Suppose you, suppose you go to a wealthy man every day, but you seek no favor of him. You simply love to see him. If he wants to show you favor, you say, No, sir, I don't need anything. I just came to see you. Such is the love of God for its own sake. You simply love God and don't want anything from him in return. Knowing and loving God like that is growing in your understanding that God is love. It's growing in that time in the shrine where you get to enjoy that company in its pure, un undistracted form. It's enjoying God, however that is. Tell him your favorite jokes. You know, Share with him your favorite memories. Sit with him and talk about the greatest experiences of love that you've had. And he'll teach you to stretch, to, to, to abstract out that love that you enjoy, separate it from the objects, clear it out from the ideas of me and mine, and see the treasure that's within you. Spend that time with the beloved for no other reason than the enjoyment of him. Because you're never going to get to the goal by doing anything. <laughs> It lies in the hands of God. It lies in relationship, not in accomplishment. 
God will purify you and your mind just by spending time with him. Nothing that you can do will purify your mind. Because as long as you do anything from the sense of being yourself, separate and apart from God, all it does is is shift the balances of karma, keeps the mind rolling on that wheel of samsara, the dharmic wheel of life. You have to step outside of that dharmic wheel. You have to set the mind down, stop being infatuated with it, Start to stop thinking that it's going to give you the answers for this life. It's not. The answers are behind it. In quantities unmeasurable. Don't be distracted. The master began to sing, Though I never am loath to grant salvation, I hesitate indeed to grant pure love. Whoever wins pure love surpasses all. He is adored by men. He triumphs over the three worlds. He continued, the gist of the whole thing. Okay, now this is is God. If If I can make this point stick out, this is God about to talk to us. The gist of the whole thing. Okay, that's what we're after, right? What's the gist of this whole thing? Get ready. The gist of this whole thing is that one must develop passionate yearning for God and practice discrimination and renunciation. That's the gist of this whole thing. Love. Love for God and doing the practices that will keep things clear, that will keep us from falling into the idea of being limited and being restricted. That's the gist of this whole thing, to develop a passionate yearning for God, a passionate yearning for love in all of its manifestations to insist on seeing that first and foremost in each other because we see it first and foremost in ourself. Mr. Chudri's again at it. He says, Sir, is it not possible to have the vision of God without the help of a guru? Mm -hmm. This is a very important question because it follows right in line with what we're saying. He says, Satchit Ananda himself is the guru. Bliss, existence, and intelligence is the guru. Love, intelligence, and existence, that's your guru. At the end of the Savasadana, just when the vision of the Ishta is about to take place, the guru appears before the aspirant and says to him, Behold, there is your Ishta. Saying this, the guru merges into that Ishta. He who is the guru is also the Ishta. The guru is the thread that leads to God. Women perform a ritualistic worship known as the Ananta Vrata, the object of worship being the infinite. But actually, the deity worshipped is Vishnu. In him are the infinite forms of God. You see, this idea of the guru, that having something, can you do it without a guru? No, you can't do it without a guru. Because without a guru, the only person driving is ego. <laughs> if you don't have a guru driving, your ego's driving. God help you. <laughs> That ego is going to take you some very strange places. So yes, you need a guru. You need a teacher. Something outside of your own mind to tell you what you need to hear that your own mind won't tell you. You know, often when the mind is telling you that you're a slob, it's not doing it in a helpful way. You know, when the mind corrects us a lot of times, it's breaking us down because we haven't learned to love even ourselves and we let ourselves be disrespectful with ourselves very strange thing. 
If you haven't learned the love, to have that love in the, in the voices of your own mind, maybe tomorrow you'll have love for somebody else. But until you get those voices in your own mind, until you treat your own self with the dignity deserved of a manifestation of God, a manifestation of word, until you believe in yourself, right? Vivekananda says that. He says, in the old days, atheism was those who don't believe in God. He says, but I tell you today, an atheist is one who does not believe in himself. So what does that mean? Start treating yourself like Satchit Ananda. Respect yourself. Love yourself. Nurture yourself. Be kind to yourself. When you make a mistake, make a mistake. Self, you made a mistake, I know. Don't do it again. All right. Move on. You don't beat yourself up. You don't call yourself an ass. You don't call yourself an idiot. You don't, you don't, you don't bring up the 12,000 times you've made mistakes. You're always doing that. God, are you never going to get your life together? You don't talk to yourself that way. You are the beloved. And it's high time that you begin creating, create, treating yourself as such. In the same reverence that you worship God in your, in, in your puja, in your service at home, or in your meditation, in that same reverence you should speak to yourself. Not in the reverence of ego. There is no reverence in ego. But from the outside of the mind, looking into the mind. That's your attitude. So in learning to love yourself, then you will learn to love others. Because you don't know anything of anybody else. You're only projecting yourself on them anyway. So the reason you can't love them is because you haven't loved the self that you're projecting on them. Right? You don't know what's going on in somebody. You know very little about anybody. I had a wonderful experience. I had a childhood friend, Brigitte was her name, 12 years old. We were friends for three years. We did everything together. I, this, I, I will say the meaning of a best friend to me is Brigitte. And I went to see her 12 years, which when you're 24, 12 years seems like an awfully long time. Nowadays it doesn't seem so long. But 12 years later, I went to visit her in Germany and looked her up and found her, tracked her down. And we we met together in the town that I grew up in, and we took you know kind of one of our walks down memory lane, down some of the roads that we used to ride our bikes on. And she had she would talk about her memories, like the things that would prompt her ideas. And then I would talk about mine, like, oh, do you remember? You know, one of the things she said to me is like, oh, do you remember that that ditch over there? Remember, it was full of water, and somebody had dumped goldfish in it, and we went and rescued the goldfish for the for that tank. Do you remember that? And I was like. Oof, no, boy, I don't don't remember that at all. And I was like, but do you remember when they were having that crazy party on the hill over there, and you and I snuck around back behind the trees to, to watch, you know, from the woods? Gosh, no, I don't remember that at all. It was the weirdest experience of my life because it was as if we had been friends with somebody else. We both had our own collection of memories and important time together, but they weren't lining up. She had collected her own basket full of experiences from the same set but had picked ones all different from me. And at the end of the day, I was like, God, that was really a weird day. I thought I was going to be like, you know, renewing a friendship and reconnecting with somebody from when I was 12 and bringing that best friend ideology back into my life. Mother was showing me what an illusion it was. You know, mother was showing me, watch this, I've got a real trick for you. Someone you have all of your memories in common with are not going to share a common memory. <laughs> okay. That's the way. You know, that's, that's the way. Because what these things are is your projection. 
You know, what I was to her and what she was to me, two radically different things, built on completely different sets of common experience, although not remembered by me. You know, vaguely. I sort of remembered the goldfish the next day. So this notion, when you run into each other, you, you, you don't know what's going on in someone else's head. There's no way that you could know what's going on in their head. You know, I mean, how many billions of things go through a head in a day? And we walk around, oh, I know you, you're my friend. You know nothing about that person. A few select facts. All the rest, you're projecting. You know, when, she, when that person talks about their relationship with their husband, you're not thinking about her relationship with their husband. You don't know anything about their relationship with their husband. You're projecting your relationship with your husband onto her. <laughs> you know, that's why communication is so difficult. So if you're going around projecting yourself on everybody all the time, deciding who they are and what they are, what they like and what they don't like, you better be in love with the person you're projecting on them. You better respect the person that you're projecting everywhere. You better be kind to the person that you're putting on everybody else around you. You better love yourself. How's that for a weird way of saying that? You better love yourself. <laughs> Get to it. Because that's the only way we can love the world. That's the only way we begin to see God. When we understand that we are one with him and everything around of us, around us. But how can we obtain God's grace? Has he really the power to bestow it? The master smiling. I see. You think as the intellectuals do. One reaps the results of one's actions. That's the way of the world. That's ego thinking. Right? Give up these ideas. Oof. The effect of karma wears away if one takes refuge in God. All right? This world is not about karma. This world is not about punya. Thank the Lord. Not about that. Okay? It melts away. Karma, punya, debt, payment, virtue, vice, all, all those things go away. They melt away. Give up these ideas. The effect of karma wears away if you take refuge in God. So what do you got to do? Take refuge in God. Your karma is getting overwhelming. You know, your life's getting out of hand. Take refuge. Go to the beloved. Begin enjoying some first-hand, unconditioned love. You probably have no idea what that means. That's exactly why you go sit to learn, to enjoy it. Run that through your mind. I pray to the Divine Mother with flowers in my hand. That's nice. Have you done that? Have you ever prayed to Mother with a nice bouquet of flowers in your hand? I've, uh, probably a lot of you have, actually. <laughs> Here, Mother, take your sin. Take your virtue. I don't want either of these. Give me only real bhakti. Here, Mother, take your good. Here, take your bad. I don't want any of your good or bad. Give me only real love real devotion. Here, Mother, take your dharma. Here, take your adharma. I don't want any of your dharma or adharma. Give me only real bhakti. Here, Mother, take your knowledge. Take your ignorance. I don't want any of your knowledge or ignorance. Give me only real devotion. Here, Mother, take your purity. Take your impurity. Give me only real devotion. The gist of the whole thing is what? Love. Develop a burning, yearning love for God. And let that manifest in everything that you do. 
take refuge in the beloved. It has nothing to do with mind. It has nothing to do with punya. It has nothing to do with how much or how little of anything, X, Y, or Z. The gist of this game is love. Set yourself free to manifest it purely. Ask only for that from God. Love him for his own sake. Love love for its own sake. Love is worthy of love. Love alone is worthy of love. Bhakti is the one essential thing, to be sure, Thakur says. God exists in all beings. Who then is a devotee? He whose mind dwells on God. But this is not possible as long as one has egotism or vanity. The water of God's grace cannot collect on the high mound of egotism. It runs down. I am a mere machine. Give up egotism. Give up the love of being right. Give up the love of doing lots of meditation and learning lots of scriptures. Give up the love of knowing all the rules and being right. Give up the, the, the love of being from a good family, being of the proper caste or the back, proper social connection. Give up those things. Give them all up. They're garbage in the end. Nobody's going to care when they dig your bones up 200 years from now, 500 years from now. Bhakti is the one essential thing. So learn love, my lovers. Learn compassion, my compassionate friends. Make this your laboratory. Let's really open our eyes to helping each other. And let's make this place known for its love. Because in that is our only message, the only thing that we have to give to this world.